0: Welcome. It's good seeing everybody today. You woke up, you came to church an hour early. That's awesome. Um, It is so good to see you. Today, we're going to be going through an amazing passage. Um, I guess in one sense, is there one that isn't? But um, I especially love this passage. I think it's uh, really encouraging. It's actually a very popular passage. How many of you have heard somebody say, hey, don't judge? That's our passage this morning. It's popular. Um, everybody uses it, especially unbelievers who don't know the Bible, who don't actually understand the context. They're the ones who use don't judge the most. But actually, it is one of the most significant passages, one of the most important passages for us as believers to think about, to understand, and to apply correctly. Um, you know, if we don't get this right, um, it's Satan's intention always to get us off track. He wants us to get off track to the right or to the left. He never wants us to be right where God wants us. And for the church to function correctly, this is an issue that we really do have to understand well. So we're about to dive into that, but just I was just thinking about the Sermon on the Mount. What an amazing sermon Jesus preached. It has such incredible variety. I mean, it it explains to us how Christians should think about the world. You've probably heard about, do you have a Christian worldview? It's just the way that a, a Christian thinks about life. And Jesus lays that out for us in the Sermon on the Mount. One of the things that I love is that it's just a bunch of specific details about loving God and loving other people. And there's these themes that work throughout the whole sermon, but it touches on every part of the way a Christian would live life. Now, you'll remember um, when we think about loving God and loving others, this person comes to Jesus and says, what's the greatest commandment? And a lot of people think in the Old Testament, God was mean and harsh and angry, and, and in the New Testament, oh, he's loving. But when Jesus summarizes the teaching of the Old Testament, He says it boils down to two things, loving God and loving other people. And I want to just show you those verses in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 6, 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. You're supposed to take everything about yourself, every ability, everything about you, and you're supposed to love God fully. And then it goes on in Leviticus 19:18. it says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. So he's talking about the Jewish nation and how they treat their family members. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. I mean, God is just saying, this is who I am. You are to love your neighbor as yourself. And some people would say, yeah, well, Jews were only supposed to love other Jews in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we love everyone. Um, Actually, not true. Um, Leviticus 19.34, you shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. You shall love him as yourself. For you are strangers in the land of Egypt, I am the Lord your God. Um, We're to love God with everything we are. People are made in God's image, and we're supposed to love other people with a love that we have for God. In fact, your reverence for God is expressed in how you treat people. And what we're going to see today in this passage is something that is, the the teaching in this passage is so important, so critical, and it is so easy. We just have this natural propensity to get off track in how we think. But this is a critical issue. So I'm going to do something. I'm going to read a long passage right now. And it's a passage about the Pharisees. One of the great things you can do as a Christian is just read through the Gospels and just notice what the Pharisees are like and then try to avoid that. Um, so Luke chapter 6, 7, Luke chapter 7, verse 36. And I'm not going to go through eight-one. i I'm just going to go to the end of chapter 7. And I think this is a perfect expression of the kind of thing that happens in churches all over the place. And if you think honestly and if you think clearly about yourself, it has happened to you. I know it's happened to me. So let's read this. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house, and he reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with ointment. So here's the sinner, and when you think about what the Pharisees were like, and when you think about the attitude that's about to be displayed, this lady walks into that environment, and I'm sure she's felt that she understands what this environment's going to be like, but she loves Jesus and she shows up and she's crying and she's washing his feet with her tears and her hair. And verse 39, now when the Pharisee who had invited him, in, invited him saw this, he said to himself. So this is actually not even something that's stated. This is an attitude that in many cases, stays inside, but it actually does come out in words. It does come out in how we treat people, but the biggest issue, the place to fight this battle is not just to control our mouth, it's to control what happens in our heart, it's to control what happens in our attitude, to evaluate that, to think about that, and so he's saying this to himself. He's thinking to himself, and then, and this is his thought about Jesus. If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for he is a sinner. She's a sinner. So he's looking down on her. He's saying, Jesus, you'd, if you knew that this woman was a sinner, you'd be disgusted. Uh, you wouldn't want her doing this. You would have disdain for her the way I have disdain for her verse 40, and so Jesus, you know, ha- have you ever walked into a room, like I-, I think about how Jesus, when he took on humanity, he lived in submission to God, he didn't make use of his deity, he relinquished none of it, but he didn't make use of his deity in living life um, to kind of solve his problems and those, those types of things, and so in this situation, Have you ever been in a room, have you ever been around people and you could just tell that somebody's looking down on someone else? You could see the the pridefulness, the smug attitude. Like I wonder if this was God, uh, if this was Jesus' omniscience or if this was something that he just sensed in a room. He's looking at this guy, he can see the expression on his face. Have you ever walked into a room and you could just sense people's disdain for you? Have you ever sensed that? I sensed that one time. Um, uh, I, I went to a restaurant, and I was hanging out with a bunch of friends, and, and these friends had come out of a homosexual lifestyle, and they all went to my church, the church that I was at. It was the church I went to when I was a new Christian. And so you have all these people who had been living that kind of lifestyle, who had become believers, they'd repented, they'd turned away from it, and we were all together ordering pizza. And when it was my turn to order pizza, I I got up to the line to order the pizza. And as I'm ordering this, the the person, the cashier checking me out, looked at me with such incredible disgust and just hatred. It was, it was kind of a weird thing. I'd actually, I don't think I'd ever experienced that before. And I was just, he didn't say anything, but it was just like, it was almost like he could throw up looking at me. And I just thought, man, this is odd. Like, I wonder what that is. It seems like this guy has this intense hatred for me. And then as I turn around and I look at the table, I realize, oh, he thinks I'm gay. And just looking at the table, I kind of had that sense. You know, you could kind of tell the lifestyle that these men had come out of. And I just saw to myself, how tragic If anybody ever shows up in church and is treated that way, is looked at that way, and I wonder how often that kind of thing happens. But It says in verse 40, Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. He says, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and another 50. When they could not repay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, The one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You've judged rightly. And then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. She has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kisses, But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Did Jesus, was he in any way unaware of the type of sinful life that this lady had? Was, Was he unaware of who she was? No, but he loved her. And when she showed up and she did that, and he, he tells her that her sins are forgiven, and it says, For she loved much. What is it that you and I are, what's the most significant spiritual thing in our life is that we love God? And I think that the big problem comes when we don't think we're sinners, we don't think we're that bad. One of the things I'm going to tell you today is that some sins are worse than others, some people are worse sinners than others, and you're the worst sinners. Yeah, that's what our passage is going to say. We'll get there. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but you're bad. You're worse than you think you are. (laughs) And you know what? That's good because if you realize that you're worse than you think you are, it's going to make you love God more because you're going to understand what he did to save you. And then those who were at the table began to say among themselves, who is this that even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has, made your, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. He's probably saying, hey, you're saved. Now get out of here. Get away from these knuckleheads. Um, Satan wants us to be judgmental as a church. And, and there, I think there's three reasons why. If we're judgmental, then it brings God's discipline and judgment into our life. One of the worst things that you can do for yourself is to be judgmental toward other people. Um, that's a terrible thing for you to do. In the interests of self-preservation, you should not be judgmental. Like There's not a, actually a way to say that um, strongly enough. This is a big deal. The second... The reason why this is so bad is because it harms our brothers and sisters in Christ, people that God died for, people that Jesus died for, that Jesus loves. When we're judgmental, it hurts them. People we're supposed to be building up and encouraging and helping. And a lot of times we're judgmental when people fall into sin or when people do things they shouldn't do what's the solution to that? It's to run to God, right? And when we're judgmental, we misrepresent God to fellow believers, but we, we misrepresent God to an unbelieving world. Sinners are supposed to run to Jesus. That's one of the things that you see in his ministry. The people who hated him and who were trying to get away from him were the Pharisees. The people running to him and wanting to be around him were the sinners, You know Jesus is the solution to people's sin problem, and we're supposed to, you know, a sinner should like you. They should want to come hang out with you. They should want to come talk to you um, because you love them, and they can tell that you love them. Um, We had a we had a neighbor, and um, she was it was a lady married to another lady, and. uh, When we first started getting to know each other, she found out I was a pastor, and she started, oh, okay, I don't want to be around this person, and you could just tell she didn't like me, didn't want to be around me, or Michelle, because she got lumped in with me, and um, the more we hung out, then she thought, oh, they're those, they're those Christians that are different because they don't think that certain kinds of things are sinful, so then she was friendly, okay, we're all good. And then she found out that we actually do believe everything that the Bible says. Everything. And she didn't know what to do with that. Because people who hold faithfully to Scripture are supposed to be hateful. That's how the world defines us. We're supposed to represent God correctly. So this morning we're going to be looking at Matthew 7.1. That was a big introduction, bigger than usual. Let's jump in here before we run out of time. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, we're going to see three important things, that godly love is not judgmental. Um, We're going to see, secondly, that godly love does seek to rescue people who are trapped in sin, and godly love is generous toward people. It's benevolent, it's loving, and merciful. So let's look at the, the first point, godly love is not judgmental. Matthew 7 1 says, judge not that you be not judged. Like that is a statement that should get our attention because there is one God, one judge, and it is God. And the Bible tells us actually that it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. When Isaiah goes into the throne room of God, he's undone because he's sinful. When John, who was Jesus' buddy on earth, sees him in Revelation, he falls down like he's dead. There's, there is a terrifying element of the nature of God, his holiness, how powerful he is, how he hates sin. Um, that's, that's a terrifying thing. And one of the, that's actually one of the big problems with not reading the Old Testament, is we forget that God is loving and he's gracious and he's merciful, but he's a judge. And so um, in the days before the flood, um, the world was wicked all the time and full of violence, so he drowned everyone in the flood. A lot of people are like, man, I don't want to tell my kids the story of God drowning everybody in the, in, the, uh, you know, in the flood. But you know what? Actually, it's one of the most important things for kids to understand. You don't mess with God. He's gracious, he's loving, he's patient, but he wipes people out. How about Sodom and Gomorrah? He goes down there and he hangs out in Sodom and Gomorrah, and he drags Lot's family out, including Lot and his wife, and then he just rains down fire and burns up the entire city. And by the way, he told Lot and his family, don't turn around and look, run for the hills. And Lot's wife is like, ah, you know, God's not that serious about obedience. She turns around and looks at the city and she's killed. And and one of the big problems in our Christian culture is we lose the sense of reverence for a holy God. And that reverence is supposed to feed into how we treat other people. So, judge not. This is, uh, he's telling them to stop an action that they've already started. And here's something for us to keep in mind. God takes personally, this is Matthew 25, talking about a judgment where Jesus is going to be judging. And in this long passage, twice, he says, the way you treat other people is how you treated me. You can read that. he goes on and he says, why do you see, like in this passage, judge not that you be not judged, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. Man, we ought to be merciful and gracious and forgiving because we need it. And then it says, with the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. Verse 3, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that is in your own eye? So, why do you see... The emphasis of that phrase is that they, these disciples, these people Jesus was talking to, they didn't just judge, they were judgmental. It was like this, it was this common thing in their life. And, and I just think that as believers, we struggle with being judgmental. Um, that's something that's so easy that pops into our mind and we think about those things. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye and don't notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? So what that's saying is a speck, that's a little sin. A log, that's a really big sin. And in this story, who has the little sin? It's other people. And who has the big sin? It's us. But you know what? It never feels that way. I mean, what, what, isn't it easy to look at other people and just go, yeah, they're worse than me. I, I don't do that. And so it's so much easier to look down on other people when the, really the issue is that your, your sin against God is worse than anything anybody could ever do to you because any sin that you sin against God is infinite because he's infinitely holy. He deserves worship and honor. So any tiny thing you do, to God is much worse than the worst possible sin that could be done to another person, except let's roll that around. And if you sin against another person, you are also sinning against God. So then you're even in trouble for that. Um, We're responsible for ourselves. We're not responsible for other people, we're responsible for ourselves. That makes our sin a much bigger deal. You know your motivation. When we look at other people, we only see what's on the outside. Like, think about this. If people could read your mind, wouldn't that be kind of be terrible? If people knew everything that you ever did, including in secret, like what what you see in another person is minor compared to what's really in any person's life. And the person that you should be most aware of is yourself. And so you have a log, everyone else has a spec. So that's significant versus ins- insignificant. And one of the key elements here is that sin harms your perspective. Think about King David and Bathsheba. Um, King David commits an affair and murders somebody. And how does Nathan get his attention? He goes and tells him this story about somebody who stole someone's pet and David is angry, he's indignant, and, and he just says, okay, this person needs to be judged, he deserves to die for stealing this pet. And then he rattles off these intricate details of what the Old Testament, um, the, the Old Testament law, like the specific um, verses that apply to stealing a sheep. So he, he like, he knows God's word, and he applies it clearly in this other situation And Nathan says, actually, David, it's you. So David has this incredible sin in his life, but he's indignant about the small sins of other people. And that's us. When we're prideful, when we're arrogant, when we're not dealing with our own sin, we don't actually see other people sin correctly. And so what, what ends up happening is you can't help other people when you're not dealing with yourself. So I just want to go really quickly. What does it not mean to be judgmental? I think it's important for us to point that out. What does it not mean to be judgmental? Declaring the truth. Identifying what is sinful. Um, Identifying what is false. To say Christianity is the only way to heaven. Anybody who's not a Christian is not going to heaven. That's not judgmental. That is a statement of truth. To say that living with somebody that you're not married to is sinful. That's not judgmental. That is a statement of truth. To say that God is the one who determines gender, we don't determine that for ourselves. That is not judgmental. That is a statement of truth. To say that God's intention is for sex to only be in marriage between a man and a woman, that is not judgmental. That's just saying what God says. And there are many other things we could say. That is not being judgmental. Now, you can say and do those things in a judgmental way. But standing for truth and stating the truth and being committed to the truth is not being judgmental. Um, We're supposed to speak the truth in love. And we're supposed to grow up. Hebrews 4.15 or Ephesians 4.15. So what is judgmental? It's doing any of those things in a prideful, arrogant way. It's doing those things. It's it's looking at the sins in another person's life when you're not dealing with your own sins. That's judgmental. It's being hard on people, scrutinizing people, evaluating every detail of their life, pointing out their flaws, uh, matching other people's weaknesses with your strengths. So if you're very hospitable and somebody else is not hospitable, it's going, man, they're not very hospitable. But then maybe you don't clean up very well and they are really clean things really well. But you don't notice that part. Or maybe you're the one who cleans and you're like, man, I clean that person now. they're just always a mess. And it's being critical of other people and saying, what are the things that we do well? What are the things that others don't do well? And it's matching our strengths against their weaknesses and comparing ourselves. It's being an accuser fault finding with people. You know who does that? That's Satan, is to fault find with other people, to walk into a room and pick out everything that's wrong with it. You get these people that are working hard to do ministry and somebody walks in and they're like, yeah, but this is wrong and this is wrong and that could be done better and this could be done better. And probably that person would go, oh yeah, there's like a hundred things I wish I could do better. I'm just doing the best I can with what's here. And being critical and scrutinizing people Um, It's judging other people over conscience issues, things that the Bible doesn't say. And we've come up with these standards for ourselves, and then we want to impose our personal convictions on other people. That's all being judgmental. And instead, we need to recognize that we are not the judge. God is the judge. Um, People don't report to us. Have you ever thought about that, this... um, my thing just lost its connection, so can you go to the next slide? We're going to kind of, we'll have fun with that. Um, excellent, okay, it was there. As for the one who's weak in faith, welcome him. So this is talking about people who, some people worship on Sundays, some people say, oh no, I'm going to worship on Saturday. Some people say, oh, I can eat meat that's sacrificed to idols. Other people say, oh no, that would be defiled, it would, I, I can't eat that meat. So this is kind of the context Paul's talking about, those things. And he says, um, for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. And, and the New American Standard translates this, and actually the, the word in there is not to, be, not to judge his opinions. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. God's the one who gets believers where he wants them to be. Why do you pass judgment on your brother, or you, why do you despise your brother? Because that's the judgment and the despising. Have you ever just thought, man, I'd love church if it wasn't for the people? Like, that's a kind of a fun joke, but actually, behind that is a judgmental attitude. I've said that. We've all said that. I'm not, I'm not picking on anybody who said that. If, if you said that to me, I don't have you in mind. <laughs> I don't even know who you are, but... Um, <laughs> I can't remember that stuff. God's blessed me with a forgetfulness in some ways. But it's despising people. Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So these are things that we need to pay attention to. You need to remember, last week we talked about don't feel anxious because of how much God loves you. Remember that? Isn't that encouraging to know how much God loves us? We need to think about this. As much as God loves you, he loves that other person too. And so when you treat that person poorly, how does God feel? What is he thinking about you when you are attacking somebody that he loves just as much as he loves you? Okay, we'll move on to point number two. Um, Godly love does seek to rescue other people. See, this is the other thing about being judgmental. Sometimes people think, oh, this this means everybody mind your own business, have nothing to do with anybody, don't help or encourage. Look at what it says in verse 5. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. It's not that you don't help, it's that you deal with yourself first so that you can help. And then it goes on, it says, don't give dogs what is holy and don't throw your pearls before the swine lest they trample them underfoot and attack you. That's kind of a confusing verse. So let's try to get through that pretty quick. So we are called to speak into the lives of other people. We're supposed to be encouraging, training, teaching, helping. And so we are to speak to other people, but first we deal with ourselves Because if you don't deal with yourself, you can't help another person. Because number one, you're not going to treat them in a merciful way, a gracious way, a kind way. Because when you go to somebody else and you're like, okay, man, I got like 50 things wrong with me. I do see one thing wrong with you and you kind of do need some help with that and I think I can help you. But you just have in mind, man, my problems are so much worse than this person. I love them. I want to encourage them. I want to help them. It changes the attitude that you have. The other thing is, You can't help other people overcome sins that you haven't overcome. So if you're a dad and you're blowing it on the Internet, how are you going to help your kids deal with that issue in their life? If you're prideful and judgmental toward other people, how are you going to help them deal with that issue in their life? We deal with ourselves first. We get our own struggles under control, and then we can step into a life of another person and humbly say, hey, you're struggling with this. I used to struggle with that too. I'm not better than you, but here's what I did to overcome that, and we can help them walk down the path that we've already walked down. And so we need to be people that are dealing with ourselves first so that we do things in a humble, encouraging, gracious way. So in this passage, that whole dogs and pigs thing, so the dogs and pigs, those are wicked people, they're fools. Um, Proverbs says, don't reprove a scoffer or he'll hate you, reprove a wise man and he'll love you. And so there are sometimes we just need to recognize that you can't force anybody to change. You can't make people change. We step into people's life, we pray for them, we encourage them, we try to help them, but you can't make someone else change. And so sometimes people refuse to listen. They don't want to hear. Uh, there have been times in my life that I'm really trying to help some people that are close to me that I really love, and they just don't want to hear it. And so I just stop talking, and I start praying for them. Sometimes I, they really want something, and you go to them, and you say, Look, if you approach this this way, that's not going to happen for you. And you're trying to give them advice and like, ah, you don't know what you're talking about. Don't tell me what to do. I'm going to do my own thing. So I just take a step back and start praying for them. And then when it all falls apart and they don't get what they wanted, sometimes they're a little easier. They listen better then. So we can't control other people. We can't force other people. And and this principle of our involvement, it is applied differently in different relationships. The closer you are to somebody, the more you love somebody, the more responsibility you have for somebody, the more responsibility you have to speak into their life. I don't walk up to strangers in, in the grocery store and talk to them about how they're talking to their spouse. But if I had a really close friend and I saw something that seemed like it was not the way it should be, I may in a gracious, humble way talk to them. If you're a parent, um, Getting involved in your kids' lives, that is your responsibility to to figure out how to help your kids. Um, There are two kinds of people in prison. People that are abused and people who receive no discipline. Those are the people that grew up to be in prison. You know, parenting, it's so bizarre nowadays. Um, People have like a three-year-old and they bring him to church and they'll say, do you wanna go to Sunday school? You know, it's like a three-year-old. Three-year-olds don't make choices for their life. You tell your three-year-old you're gonna go to Sunday school and you help them figure out how to work it out. We don't ask three-year-olds for direction, but the way that people parent nowadays, um, it's challenging because a lot of times people didn't grow up in a home where they were parented, they haven't learned. So was I just judgmental? (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Um, you can't help other people until you've dealt with yourself. We can't force other people to change. And one of the things we need to think about is in this whole thing is this, that godly love is generous and merciful. Godly love is generous and merciful. This passage is kind of odd because it's talking about don't, don't be judgmental. And then there's a section on prayer. And then verse 12 says, treat other people the way you want to be treated. It's kind of like Oh, wow, kind of out of nowhere, Jesus just throws this thing in on prayer. And, and this passage, these next few verses we're going to read, it is about prayer. Like there are some things about prayer we can learn from this. But this is actually not about prayer. This is just God saying, hey, think about your relationship with me. I'm good. Um, that's, the, that's how this is used, that God is good and God expects us to treat other people the way he treats us. And he just says, I'm good. I love you. I care about you. So be good and loving and gracious and kind to other people. So um, Matthew 7, 7 says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks. To the one who knocks it will be opened. So Everything we have, when we go to God, he loves us. He cares about us. He listens to us. He's not rejecting us. God is not hard on us. God loves us. And he's just saying, look how benevolent I am. Look how good I am. Look how much I care for you. And then it goes on, and he makes this comparison. And he says, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you, then, who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? The whole point of that is just to say, God is so good. He's so much better than you are. God is good. And when it comes to prayer, that's not an unqualified promise. That whatever you ask for, you'll get. Psalm sixty-six eighteen says, "If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me." James one five says, "When I ask in faith, if you if you ask in, if when you ask, you must ask in faith without doubting." First um, John five fourteen says that you need to pray according to God's will. Like these are all things, but Jesus's point here is that God is good. Now I want to just throw something out there. You know, Romans 8, one of my favorite passages about the Holy Spirit, it says that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us when we don't know how to pray as we should. Did you know that? So think about this. Oh, Lord, please give me a new car. I really want a new car. And the Holy Spirit goes, "Um, Lord, don't give him the car. Because that wouldn't be good for him. Like, think about that. The Holy Spirit is praying for you, turning all your bad prayers around. So when you pray according to God's will, then God's going to hear that. But your, your prayers get intercepted by the Holy Spirit. That's kind of cool. You know, it's interesting, this whole thing of seek in this whole prayer passage. Um, what did it say a few verses earlier that we're supposed to seek? God's kingdom and God's righteousness. That's what we're supposed to be about. So this is just saying that God is good. And by the way, that is the foundation for your prayer life, knowing that you love God and God loves you. That's the foundation. But this is about saying God's good. Think about how good he is to you. Is that how you are to other people? Do you represent God in the life of the people around you? And then this is one of the things I love about Jesus in his teaching because he gives us a a sentence, he gives us a phrase that helps us manage our relationships. You know, sometimes when when somebody's struggling in sin and they need encouragement and you need to come alongside them and sometimes people need hard words, like I, I think about just in parenting, there's times I've had to address my kids firmly and strongly and look at them and at times saying, you will not do this. And my kids know that when I say you will not do this, they know I'm serious and the things I've done in their life from the time they were in like third or fourth grade (laughs) to let them know when I tell you something, you better pay attention. Um, That's not being harsh, it's not being unloving. And sometimes we have brothers and sisters in Christ who are struggling and we are not their judge, but sometimes people need someone to come alongside and care for them and love them and speak into their life. And sometimes we do and say things to people that they don't like. And maybe they'll be mad at us. But those are things that we do and say when we really love people. And Jesus helps us figure out, how do you know when to not do something, when to not say something? How do you know when your attitude is wrong versus when your attitude is right? And he just says this. "Um, So whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them for this is the law and the prophets. The whole Old Testament, treat other people the way you want to be treated. And that has to be qualified though. Um, That's assuming that you're a Christian and you view life the way a Christian would view life. How would you want to be treated? See, some people might say, you know, I think I'd like to have an affair and I would like everybody to tell me that's okay. That's So how do I want to be treated? I want to be able to just do whatever is destructive and is harmful to people around me. So if you're thinking like that, then you're actually thinking like you're not a Christian. But, but any Christian, if you say to them, what would you want someone to do if you were about to have an affair? You'd say, man, I, I hope everybody who knows me and loves me and cares about me would step in and would talk to me and would plead with me and pray for me and do whatever they could to stop me from doing this destructive thing. That's what I would want. Um, What would you want, how would you want someone to treat your kids? That's another way when you say, treat other people the way you would wanna be treated. How would you want someone to treat your kids? If my kids were struggling in sin, and and this this has happened with people in my life, when my dad was an (laughs) unbeliever and things like that, I would pray, I hope they bump into a believer that will talk to them, that will encourage them. And if my dad came or my kids ever came when they were struggling with some kind of an attitude issue and they went to a youth group and their youth leader confronted them about it or somebody, a fellow Christian at school said, hey, why are you acting and thinking this way? And they came home, I am so ticked at this person that said this to me. And I'm like, oh, thanks, Lord. That's an answer to prayer. Hopefully they'll hear. Thank you for putting that person there that loved them and cared about them. Um, Would you want... Your kids, when they're struggling in sin, to show up to church and have people be unkind and reject them and judgmental, not welcome them, not encourage them. So we ought to think about other people and treat other people the way we want to be treated, the way we would want our kids to be treated, assuming that we actually value the things that God values and that we know that God is wise and whatever God says is the best thing is the best thing. See, sometimes we feel like, oh, yeah, God says don't do that. But actually, I think that would be the best option. Wrong. (laughs) That is never the best option. So we treat other people the way we would want to be treated. We treat other people the way God treats us. That's a really critical thing for the church, that we focus on truth, that we say what God wants us to say, but that we do it the way God would want us to do it. So the Pharisees, they were legalistic. And they had figured out a way to disobey God and anger him even while they tried to obey or that when they thought they were obeying. There's two types of churches. And as we close, a church is a reflection of the people who go there. So there's two kinds of people. And so this is actually about you, but in a sense, it's also about our church. And there's two kinds of churches and two kinds of people that we do not want to be and we don't wanna be legalistic. And usually, churches are legalistic, but they pride themselves that they stand for truth. That's a prideful thing, and they're legalistic. And the other kind of church is a compromising church. And usually, that's done in the name of love. There's a lot of churches that would never say, oh, marriage is only between a man and a woman. Sex is only supposed to be in marriage between a man and a woman. A lot of churches won't take standards. A lot of Christians won't take stands on those things. Compromising people, they just want the approval of the world. They don't actually care what is in people's best interests. We don't want to be legalistic and we don't want to be compromising. Wholehearted obedience to God is not legalism. That is not legalism. Jesus says about the Pharisees, you tithe the mint and the dill and you neglect the weightier portions of the law of justice and mercy. And he said, you should have tithed the mint and the dill, but you should not have neglected these big things. So Jesus never says, "Ah, wholehearted obedience, insignificant. He never says that. So wholehearted obedience is not legalism. Legalism is actually obeying without really obeying. Legalism is perverting and modifying what God has said and replacing it with our opinions. Legalism is treating other people in a way that God doesn't treat you. So um, here at Foothills, we've got to be faithful. And if we compromise the truth, people might as well not come. You know, churches that are loving and welcoming and don't tell anybody the truth, it's like, what good is it? Just tell everyone to go home. Uh, Just be afraid of the coronavirus and don't go. Um, But you know what? If you are legalistic and you are hard on people and you are harsh and you are judgmental, you misrepresent God and you harm the very people that God is trying to care for. So let's be... If we're that kind of people, then we will also be that kind of church. By the way, pray for our leaders, that they'll be those kinds of people, because the leaders are the ones who are supposed to be setting examples. And so pray for us. Satan's always trying to get us off track. I always struggle with those kinds of things. Pray for me, and I'll pray for you, and you guys all be a good example to me. And I'll try to be a good example to you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for giving us your word. I just ask that you would help us to just dwell and think about how much you love us. And Lord, that we would display that same love. Lord, sinners can run to you and they can always be forgiven. And Lord, I pray that we would express the same kind of demeanor that you expressed when you were here on earth and that sinners would be drawn to us, that they would know that we'll tell them the truth, but that we'll do that in a loving, gracious way. Help us to be wise in our timing, that we would never distract people and make people think that a relationship with you is about external behavior rather than the heart. God, I pray that you would help us to be wise in that, that we would genuinely love each other, and that we would all benefit from being in a church with people who reflect your character in your name. Amen.